morning. Thank you for joining us. Everyone can grab a seat. We'll get underway. <coughs> so, uh, my name is Brendan Bopel, and I work for the State of the Rockies Project here on campus. Uh, it's a great honor to have our speaker, Vincent Stanley, here with us today. As you all know, Vincent will be speaking about his recently co-authored book, The Responsible Company, What We've Learned from Patagonia's First 40 Years. When I first picked up a copy of Vincent's book last year, I thought it would be an ideal topic for a first Monday event here on campus. CC's history of environmental stewardship, ties to the outdoors, and general fashion trends are all closely related to the efforts that Patagonia has pursued in the business realm for the last 40 years. And reading further, I realized that the State of the Rockies Project would be an ideal sponsor for this event, for while the 10 years of the project's existence pales in comparison to the 40 of Patagonia, or the nearly 140 of this college. The Rockies Project is a natural development of the college's past, an organic creation found in the attitudes, actions, and sentiments that have prevailed here at CC for well over a century. We are situated in a unique location here at the base of Pikes Peak with the expanse of the Rockies as our backyard, and it has remained an ever-important influence in the development of this college. Thus, for the past 10 years, the Rockies Project has sought to tie CC back to our place here in the Rockies, a place that has drawn us all, all of us here today. Through our State of the Rockies report card and annual conference, we have worked to help Rockies residents clearly see their communities, economies, and environments so that they might better shape their futures. Working under the motto of research, report, engage, we have taken innovative steps in the last few years to develop upon our strong foundation of researching and reporting to engage people in a new way. Working under a belief quite similar to the founders of Patagonia, we have aimed to show that a healthy environment is not in contradiction to a healthy economy and a high standard of living, but rather the two exist in a symbiotic relationship where the protection and welfare of our environment promotes a healthy economy. Just two weeks ago, we released the results of our third annual conservation in the West Pole. While the poll covers a broad spectrum of issues, at its heart are questions regarding the relationship between our communities, our economies, and the environments that sustain us. For example, here in Colorado, when asked about the relationship between our public lands and the economy, 98% of people said that the public lands are an essential part of the state's economy. This growing tide of recognition regarding healthy environments and sustainable, robust economies is evidence that the rhetoric from those at Patagonia has taken hold throughout society. With this growing recognition of environmental issues, the threats to the land, air, and water that sustain us have also been brought to the forefront. When asked about water and snowpack here in Colorado, 93% of residents believe that the low level of water in rivers is a serious problem. It was under this growing concern that the Rockies Project focused its efforts on the Colorado River for the last two years in hopes of engaging a different group of stakeholders, one often overlooked, the youth of this region, we set it to raise awareness of this mighty river that is sucked dry before it can even reach the Sea of Cortez. Last year, Will Stauffer Norris and Zach Podmore, sponsored by the Rockies Project, traveled from the headwaters of the Green River in Wyoming and paddled some 1,700 miles to the devastated Colorado River Delta. Their story was one of adventure, traveling to some of the wildest places left in the American Southwest. But as they were left with the knowledge of the river's perilous state, they set out once again this past summer to engage stakeholders along the river and to produce a video series highlighting the many people who rely on a healthy river for their everyday lives. 
Here's the trailer for the upcoming video series set to, re set to be released in the coming months. So we're killing our natural environment to create an artificial one. Get ready for your bluegrass. As long as people want to go find uh, food at their grocery store, water projects will be needed. It seems strange to me that the river is the one who has the least right to its own water. We are standing on what is essentially a new continental divide. How do we come together and save the places that all kinds of different people love? No, you know, we don't need Lake Powell. never did. follow the expedition's journey through the video series and that you may all come to better understand the state of one of our country's great rivers that sustains nearly 30 million people. And uh, before, I, before I turn it over, the, uh, turn over the stage to our very own uh, college president, Jill Tiefenthaler, to introduce our esteemed speaker, I wanted to make one quick solicitation to the audience that there's still one week left for interested, stu interested students in their junior year to apply to be on our student research team for the upcoming summer. Any interested students should reach out to one of our current researchers or myself for additional information. Um, I also want to mention that at the end of Vincent's talk, he's uh, interested in taking some questions. So once he's done with his talk, I think I will actually come down here. We can actually have students come up to the front of the, um, front of the aisles here, and we'll just take some questions, and uh, he's willing to answer some of them. So um, without further ado, our wonderful president of Colorado College, Jill Tiefenthaler. Good morning. I want to begin by thanking Professors Christine Sidaway and Marula Kreish and the entire Academic Events Committee for their wonderful work in organizing our First Mondays. First Mondays is now one year old, and I want to thank all of you and the committee for making it such a huge success. I also want to thank the State of the Rockies Project, specifically Walt Hecox and Brendan Bopel, for their role in organizing today's program. Please join me in thanking all of them.
Now it's my great honor to introduce our speaker, business innovator, and environmentalist, Vincent Stan Stanley from Patagonia Company. Patagonia is a leader in evaluation and a remediation of the social and environmental impacts of its own business practices. These efforts resulted in Fast Company Magazine ranking Patagonia number 14 in their 2012 list of the world's most innovative companies. At Patagonia, Mr. Stanley is acting vice president of marketing and editor of the company's interactive website, The Footprint Chronicles. Disparate responsibilities that are emblematic of the interwoven nature of the company's brand, sport, and environmental stories. Mr. Stanley shares the Patagonia Company's vision for responsible business in a recent book that he co-authored with Patagonia's owner and founder, Yvonne Chouinard. The book, The Responsible Company, What We've Learned from Patagonia's First 40 Years, and Mr. Stanley has been there through those 40 years, examines the impact of current manufacturing and commerce practices on the planet's natural systems and human communities, and outlines how companies can reduce the harm they cause, improve the quality of their business, and provide meaningful work for their employees. Please join me in welcoming Vincent Stanley. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I want to uh, talk in a, a general way. I'd like to start out by just reading the first couple of paragraphs of the book and then talk about how we came to write it. And then a little bit about the experience of Patagonia and how it might be relevant to the experience you'll have in the 40 or 50 years you'll have as a working person. I want to allow a lot of time at the end for questions. This is a larger group than I usually talk to, so, uh, but don't be shy, I'm sure. <laughs> and I have my very high-tech device to let me know how long I go on. We are all still living in the earliest stages of learning how what we do for a living both threatens nature and fails to meet our deepest human needs. The impoverishment of our world and the devaluing of the priceless undermine our physical and economic well-being. Yet the depth and breadth of technological innovation of the past few decades shows that we have not lost our most useful gifts. Humans are ingenious, adaptive, clever. We also have moral capacity, compassion for life, and an appetite for justice. We now need to more fully engage these gifts to make economic life more socially just and environmentally responsible and less destructive to nature and the commons that sustains us. This book aims to sketch, in light of our environmental crisis and economic sea change, the elements of business responsibility for our time, 
when everyone in business at every level has to deal with the unintended consequences of a 200-year-old industrial model that can no longer be sustained ecologically, socially, or financially. This book, though it draws on our experience at Patagonia, aims to be useful to all people who see the deep need for change in business practices and who work in companies quite unlike ours. Although we mostly address companies that make things or, like us, design things made by others, this book is germane to all businesses that offer a service or to NGOs and nonprofits that want to treat their people well and reduce the environmental impact of their business. This book is for anyone who works, not just business leaders and managers. It is also for business students and other young people who want to engage their best, deepest self in the working life that stretches ahead. I can tell the flu has been going around. So I, I want to talk a little bit about how we, how we came to write this book. Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder of the company, and also he's my uncle, um, which is how I came to the company uh, 40 years ago as a 20-year-old uh, dropout from St. John's College in Santa Fe. Um, most of my friends also dropped out and then came to Colorado College, by the way. <laughs> he, he wrote a book of, about seven years ago that, that served as a kind of autobiography and talked about, described himself as a reluctant businessman and how he started in his parents' backyard making climbing equipment because he had become a climber and couldn't find the climbing equipment he needed. He also talked in that book about the, philosophy, the business philosophies, including the design philosophy that the company had adopted. But what he saw was, seven years out, the need for a really small, concise book that could serve as, a, as part manifesto and also part kind of Ford parts guide or practical guide to making business more sustainable. And so his main contribution to this book, they're about, it's only about 125 pages long, and the last 40 pages of the book are checklists. And in the checklist, we, 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 define, we define the responsibilities of a business in five different ways, and four are ways that would be familiar to almost anyone in business. The first is you're responsible to the financial health of your company or it won't continue. The second is to the employees who make everything happen. The third is to uh, customers who also make things happen. And the fourth is to communities and, in, and for us as because making things and selling things has become so complex in our time those communities can include not just where your, where your headquarters are located, but can include the plants that make your goods that may be halfway across the globe. The fifth major area of responsibility that we talk about is not conventionally regarded in most, you won't find in business books, and that's to nature. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about how we got there. But the main in the checklist, 
what we've done is to divide up those responsibilities among those five areas. They're very concrete. So that's his contribution. My contribution was a little bit different. And what I saw was that I was coming to the end of my career, that I had worked in this company from the time I was 20, from the time it was a group of 10 people of climbers and surfers, to a company that now does about $600 million a year, has 1,200 employees worldwide. And there are a lot of stories like that in, in business, or there are, there are enough. But what interested me is not that we were a small company that had succeeded, but that we were a small company that had kept the initial spirit going from that group of 10 people, that that spirit still pervades the company 40 years later when it has such an enormous size. I wanted to know, I wanted to know for myself how that could happen. And because I'm essentially a writer, the, the best way to find out how that happened was to write a book. So that's, that's how, we, how we started. And so the lessons, the lessons we learned, I think the primary lesson I learned in why this company had been able to keep its spirit, but perhaps more importantly, because we had been able to keep its spirit, we had been able to do things that other companies hadn't done. We had been able to examine our business practices and to make changes in the way that we make things that reduce the harm to the environment, and we were able to influence other companies to do the same. How is this possible? And I think one of the things that's, very, that's key is that we all started out, I, I was not very hardcore, but most of the people who, were, who worked there were, were very serious climbers and surfers. And there was a connection to wilderness that I think is very hard to explain to anybody who doesn't know it. It's probably easy to explain to you folks. <laughs> and that is, it, 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 wilderness may not, may not really exist, it may be something that really exists in the human heart, but it is palpable, it is real. And for a surfer, it starts 10 feet from the shore. For a climber, it starts about a mile from the roadhead. Once you lose the systems of social support, once you start to feel yourself in relation to larger nature, once you begin to feel yourself both smaller in relation to other things and larger in relation to yourself. That is an extraordinary feeling that people work all their lives to preserve and to feel again. And when they come to understand, as I think our early employees did very, very early on, that you really have to work to protect not only those places, but the very experience of wilderness, that makes a huge difference. And that, when shared by a community, makes a big difference. So we, but I want to talk about how we, we weren't very smart. <laughs> and, 
we, we, were, uh, we were gonzo, but we were not very smart. And I want to, I think that I, I talk about in the book that we, for us, Patagonia, having started out, we started out as a climbing equipment company, Patagonia was intended to be our irresponsible business. We knew as climbers that every piton we made or every ice axe we turned out, if it had a hairline crack or if it had any kind of metal fatigue problem, would endanger the, our lives and, that of, and the lives of our friends. For clothing, that was supposed to be our romp in the park. Now, realize we were at two hundred thousand dollars. We we had seventy percent of the climate of the market share for climbing in the world. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of opportunity to go out and grow the business. We probably made about a two percent profit at the end of the year. Um, I remember going to early trade shows and sleeping along the river. Uh, uh, in, in, my, in my sleeping bag because we didn't have room for a hotel. Um, so Patagonia was intended to be a source of profit. It was intended to be something that we had to worry less about, that you didn't worry if, the, if a, a, rugby sleeve, a rugby shirt sleeve tore because it would not endanger anyone's life. So that was kind of the mindset we started out in business. There's a key element. I think the first thing we did as a company was actually before we got into clothing that was instrumental in everything that we were able to do later. And that was at the, in 1972, right before I got there, climbing started to increase in popularity as a sport. And climbers... Uh, then, as now, tended to choose very popular routes. And everyone at those, in, in those days, there were no cams or, or, or chocks as yet, used pitons and for protection. And every piton had to be hammered in and then had to be hammered out or loosened up. And as a result, the major routes in the United States in El Dorado Canyon and the Schwangunksen in Yosemite started to suffer some very severe damage. We looked, as the small group of people, we looked at what we were making, and we understood that we were hurting the very sport we were supporting and that something had to be done. We couldn't continue to do this. And there was an alternative. And that was the British had start to start, uh, they had started to make eccentrics, uh, aluminum chocks that could be wedged into the cracks and then wedged out, torqued out, without use of hammers. What we did was in 1972, we published a catalog with an essay by Doug Robinson called The Whole Natural Art of Protection. And in that essay, he called for climbers not to use pitons at all unless they were in a life-and-death situation and to switch over to the, the chocks of hexcentrics and stoppers, which we introduced to the American market. That essay was very successful, and within seven months, our business, which had been 70% reliant on 
pitons became 70% reliant on chocks. And that became kind of the essential mother lesson that, A, we could talk to our customers and as, as friends and persuade them to a change of behavior that we were adopting ourselves and thought would be better for the whole community, and, B, that it wouldn't hurt our business. So now I want to flash forward about 20 years later. We're in the clothing business. We're fairly successful. It's 1988. We've already, because we, um, because we love the wilderness, we had already begun to give out 1% of our sales each year to environmental groups that work to save a particular patch of land or stretch of river. But we had... Never done, we treated our employees well, but we had never looked behind the curtain in our supply chain. We had no idea what the working conditions were in the factories for people who made our goods. We had no idea what the environmental implications of those goods were. And that's kind of the surprise for us, what the, the, the knock on the head came in 1988. We opened a store in Boston on Newbury Street. Brand new, beautiful store. Three days later, our employees started calling in sick. Headaches, stomach aches. We called in an environmental engineer and asked him to fix the problem, which he did. And then when he gave us the bill, we said, that's fine, we're glad you fixed it, but what caused the problem in the first place? He said, well... It's the formaldehyde off-gassing from the cotton clothes in your basement. And that was the first indication we had that what we thought of as a natural fabric, cotton, was actually an environmental villain and that it used about 8% of the pesticides used in, in the world at that time, used about 25% of all the pesticides used in agriculture. That lesson came home enough for us that we commissioned a study of the major four fibers that we used in our clothes. We did confirm, indeed, that cotton was the worst, even though we used polyester and nylon that are oil-based. We started to kind of make a long story short. It took us about a year and a half, but we made a commitment to switch entirely from conventionally grown cotton to organic cotton. And we did this because we knew there was an alternative. And that the, uh, and we had the confidence, I think, from having worked 20 years or 16 years earlier to change the business from pitons to chocks. We had the confidence. We knew we could talk to our customers. We knew we could undertake a major campaign to change our own behavior and get our friends to go along with us. It turned out to be a little scarier than we originally thought. We had, uh, we contracted for, I think, all the organic cotton grown in the San Joaquin Valley that year. And um, we prayed for rain uh, because if there hadn't been any, we wouldn't have delivered any shirts or shorts that year. We had to guarantee the farmers' bank loans because their banks wouldn't lend them money to grow organic cotton. 
we had to find ginners who would agree to clean the cotton um, because it cost them money to uh, clean their machines after using conventional cotton and put organic in. We had to find a whole infrastructure of spinners and weavers and knitters to make our clothes. But what we discovered in the process, and I think this is key, is how little we had come to know our own business. We didn't know any of that. We had always relied on our supply chain to provide us the information and to provide the services. And in the process of learning about how what we did was done, we actually learned several things that produced efficiencies that allowed us not to raise the prices as much as we would have expected from making that switch from conventionally grown commodity cotton to specialty organic cotton. This played out, this lesson played out, has played out several times more. Um, a, a couple of years later, we also introduced recycled polyester to the market, working with a partner. That hadn't been done before. And again, I think we were able to, to work with that, work with Malden Mills, work with our partner, because we had had the success in the past. So I kind of raise this to you as an example. When you start to work, it's something to remember that these very basic small victories give both individuals and groups the confidence to do something next. I think it's very hard. I was just talking with Jill in her office. It's very hard. If you look at the future and you say, oh, this looks impossible, what has to be done is so daunting. But if you look as a business person who's been in, in it for 40 years, if I look at what has to be done in business, I find it very daunting. But if I look back to 1996, 1998, 2000, what I see is people doing things in business that they didn't even talk about then. There are, I've been talking to colleges, almost every graduate business school of any salt has a very serious sustainability program. The, the graduates of those sustainability programs will start to have mid-level jobs in about two or three years and have a tremendous chance to influence American business. Nobody in business who was educated comes out of a culture that cared a whit about sustainability or the environment. None of that was part of the language until the last decade. I want to talk just a little bit about the context for my life and what I think will be and the, con the different context that you'll have in your life. When I started working for Patagonia, when Patagonia started, there were, about, there were less than 4 billion people on the planet. Right now there are seven, and we use the resources of one and a half planets. 
and that's on average, because in the United States we use the resources, the equivalent resources of seven planets. Europe uses three. Now, if we stretch this out and we look toward the end of your careers, or the peak of your careers, going out not all that far to 2050, we're going to have nine billion people on the planet. And more importantly, we're going to have another one, two, or three billion people who are rising up from a disrupted subsistence economy into a consumer economy. And consumer economies are the economies that create the demands on the planet. The environmental um, pressures are extraordinary. And even though they are not kind of widely felt by the media at the moment or by the – they're not talked about during elections, I can assure you that every scientist in the country is extraordinarily worried about the ability of all of our natural systems to function over the next 20, 30, 40 years. I can assure you that every large business – is worried about where it's going to get its raw materials and how it's going to function over the next 40 years. So in your lifetime, I think that this kind of disruption is going to be a key part of the work. Now, I don't say that to make you sad, <laughs> because I think it also gives you extraordinary opportunity to do good things to apply the values that you have here as students for all your working lives. This has been something that I realized at the end of my life, the end of my working life, that Patagonia has provided me meaningful work for four decades. And that in the struggles that we've had to do what we've done, all of that has um, been very close to what I cared about from the beginning as a person. It's extraordinarily rewarding. It's a much greater satisfaction than almost anything I can think of. We're going to... Uh, I want to talk just a little bit, because I want to... I've talked rather abstractly, so I want to kind of bring back this question about the harm we do nature to the business that I'm in. We took out an ad about a year ago in the New York Times, full page on Black Friday, which is the, the hottest selling day of the year. And the headline said at the top, don't buy this jacket. And, of course, it was a teaser. But what we pointed out in the ad, what we, the jacket in question was uh, an R4 regulator fleece jacket. And what we pointed out was that this jacket was among the most environmentally benign products we make. It, it lasts for decades. If any of you, I know that you come from households in which the fleece still hangs on the in the hallway that may be 20 or 30 years old. 
It will, it will last for decades. It's made of 60% recycled polyester. And moreover, at the end of those two or three decades, we'll take that jacket back. You can send it to our warehouse in Reno. We'll ship it to Japan. We'll melt it down. And we'll re-extrude new polyester fiber that can make a new fleece jacket that's of the same quality as the jacket that was melted down. That's rather extraordinary. But that same jacket uses, in the course of its manufacture, enough uh, water to meet the needs of 45 people for a single day. It generates two-thirds of its weight in scrap waste in spite of the most sophisticated CAD-CAM systems available. It generates 23 times its weight in greenhouse gas emissions. So that everything made has an enormous cost. And that one of the things that we're going to have to do as a people in the, in, in the affluent West over the course of your lifetimes is really to decouple the sense of prosperity from accelerated material growth. Because even a circular economy won't produce the results we have, not the cradle-to-cradle of taking existing products and making new ones. We really have to have a whole new vision of prosperity and satisfaction. We're now engaged at Patagonia in a new environmental education campaign. I think you're familiar with those if you've seen our catalogs. The last campaign has been called Our Common Waters, about freshwater supplies and dangers to them and pollution. But the for the next two years, we really want to talk about what a more responsible economy might look like. And we really see that in two areas. First is in the kind of economy that Patagonia very much participates in, which is the standard industrial economy and how we can reduce the harm we do, um, do more with less. And the second is how to um, support the efforts of more local economies. Um, it's kind of high-tech high versus high-touch um, that we've seen with the rise of organic farming and with very small-scale efforts that are kind of made possible by – the Internet makes these possible because you can have international or global – markets for locally made goods. So anyway, we will be talking more about that in the next couple of years. And kind of in closing, the last thing I want to talk to you about is the choice of, the choice of our word, res responsible company or responsible economy, and why we don't use the word sustainable. And partly it's because we're so far Sustainability is such a far shore away from us that it's a little daunting if you're honest. And if you're not honest, <laughs> it's a bit cheaply bought. We like the word responsible because it covers, some, it covers an impulse and a human capacity that's within each one of us.
The book starts out with a quote from um, Gerald Amos, whom we don't we don't explain who Gerald Amos is. He's a uh, tribal leader up on the Skeena River in, in British Columbia. But his quote is, the most important right we have is the right to be responsible. And I think that's so true. I'd like to open it up for questions.